Welcome back, Brown Girls. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I'm talking with Kaya Morris. Kaya is a former state representative from Vermont. It was important for me to talk to Kaya because one of the things that we do at the Brown Girls Guide is not only talk about the good that happens for women of color in politics, but also the bad. Unfortunately, Kaya has experienced her share of the bad. Although Vermont is a politically progressive state, there are still people in Vermont who felt that someone like Kaya didn't belong. Unfortunately, this is something I hear from women of color who are running for office often. Will I be stopped when I'm canvassing? Will people listen to me? Will they look past my hair to actually understand the important things that are coming out of my mouth? Running for office is hard, but it's even harder for women of color. But we know women like Kaya are able to overcome and persevere and do what is best for them and their community. Today, she shares her story with us. I am so excited to speak to you today. I've always admired you from afar. We've, you know, talked on Twitter and email. So really appreciate having you here today for our first season. So let's start off with how did you discover your love of politics? Mm. I think I've always been political. My family's always been political. My grandfather was a city council member. Um, I, you know, had always worked on, I worked on the Clinton campaign first time around, Um, you know, so there were things that, um, at least on my college level. So there were things that um, certainly had always put a fire in me around politics, but I didn't see myself stepping into the political arena until I actually went through a leadership program, actually based out of Washington, D.C., through the Impact Center. And um, it was one of those types of moments where, as I was going through my vision board of how I saw myself and where I wanted to see my life going, I talked about the challenges that I was having in the workplace. But I also talked about the wonderful projects and things that I had an opportunity to connect with local folks around. And our mentor at the time, you know, really said, you know, as I hear you talking about the challenges that you're having in your life and the challenges that are happening in your workplace, there, you know, your voice drops, your shoulders slump. There's sort of a palatable sadness that sort of happens. But then when I hear you talking about the things that you're doing in your community, there is a fire that is just gorgeous to behold. Have you ever thought about running for office? And of course, everybody in the room was like, yeah, sounds great. And I was just still very confused. <laughs> saying, that sounds like a horrible prospect. Let's go and step into the political arena, which we know is so, it can be so vitrolic and so you know binary as it feels very often, you know, just these sort of really hard divides and this, um, this sort of uh, severity that we imagine that's always within these spheres. And I just was like, well, my sensitive heart... <laughs> I don't know. I have my strong side, but I also have my sensitive side. How will I do in this kind of a world? So I kept talking to different folks that I knew that had been involved in politics and um, then applied for the Emerge program and was able to be in the first class. And it really was um, being in that Emerge Vermont program really helped me understand what that actually means for you to step into the arena to offer to serve. And to be in the space where power is held and to claim that power for yourself and for the people that you represent. 
And it really made a, a huge impact on me seeing myself as being able to do that. Like there was a reason why people were asking me, even though I didn't see myself in that role, there was a reason. And I wanted to find out what that reason was. And so um, really having gone through Emerge and having met, you know, created that sisterhood and seeing, you know, kind of behind the veil of this obscure sort of concept really helped me be able to see that there was a space and a place and a voice that I could offer within politics. I love it. And you talk about that when it comes to running for office, a lot of times we don't see it in ourselves, but other people see it in us. Mm -hmm. And we have to have that extra push. So what was it that actually drove you to say, okay, the time is now for me to file, to run and make a difference? Well, I feel that we're led to where we're meant to be. And really, the fact that I had the opportunity to mentor underneath Governor Madeline Kunin and be in that incredible space of people who were so encouraging, um, knowing that there was going to be an opportunity right there <laughs> that was happening, um, it seemed like this was, you know, this was your sign. This was your sign. And as I went around collecting signatures to get my name placed on the ballot, just feeling that palatable excitement that people had around an opportunity for something different, something fresh, and knowing that, you know, I had built this reputation as a person who stood for the people and was courageous and was bold and was willing to fight, but also, you know, could come with the savvy and the intelligence and the skills to be able to get things done and had a strong work ethic. Seeing how much it meant for people to, to be able to feel like they could support me in this small way and I could in turn support them. Like, I think that's what helped get me over the hump because it's still a nerve-wracking prospect to uh, actually go through <laughs> the process of officially saying, I want to place my name on a ballot. But you took that step, and for so long, you served as the only Black woman in the Vermont State House. And one of the series that we have on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics blog is being the only brown girl in the room, how did you deal with that for so long? It was really not easy, and it became more and more difficult as time went by. I think, you know, I felt supported in many ways by the people that were there within the legislature. We were fortunate to have the the balance of power, at least within the legislature, of really strong women leaders and chairs of committees. And so that gave some somewhat of a safe space. But recognizing that I would have to center myself and my own stories and experiences in order to even give a voice to other folks is very, it can be overwhelming and awesome at the same time. So as I went through, you know, there are things that you sort of expect. Well, you know, again, I went in with a certain vision of this is what politics will look and feel like. But I didn't also go in with a sense of fear or trepidation around that. I was just going to move in space and then get my job done <laughs> and do what I needed to do to get my job done. I'm going to ask difficult questions if need be and press these seats of power in the ways that I could. I could sense pretty early on that there was a sort of hesitancy to dive into talking about what real racial justice looks and feels like. And it's very different to go from being the activist to then being 
the actor that's placing these policies in motion. So here we are within our first week and we have folks protesting on health care. And I see indigenous and black and brown folks that are getting arrested right there on the state house floor and saying, you know, part of how I showed that solidarity would have been me being on that floor <laughs> with them, <laughs> with my hands behind my back, being arrested. Um, and now I'm in this other sort of strange liminal space um, but recognizing that it does, it changes, it changes in some levels, but um, also I, th I think it changes both how you feel about that work that you're trying to do, but it also, I mean, you never know who is watching you as you're trying to reach up and outward. So, I mean, I think I would say at the beginning it was, you know, I was still kind of finding my footing, even though I was very quickly embraced within the state house and was able to easily move up in ranks and as far as being able to gain power and influence within this space. Um, and then we had that huge shift that happened when Donald Trump came into office and that changed this entire tenor. So while there may have been microaggressions, there might have been um, moments that clearly were sort of marked by gendered, racialized kind of experience, it became glaringly so with this new sort of Wild West free-for-all as far as uh, political ideology and political speech and um, just dogmatism that kind of really crept into those spaces. And I felt that so much more. I knew that I stand on the shoulders of my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother and so many other powerful Black women before me who could have never imagined that I might be in that space, but were with me all along. Something that we just saw post-2016, but a lot of light was shed on in the 2018 election cycle are the real barriers that women of color, particularly Black women, face when they are running for office. You can live in a very liberal city, liberal state. Something I say all the time is, yes, you can be a Democrat, but you can be a Democrat and be racist, sexist, homophobic. Mm -hmm. It really exists. So what advice do you have for the women of color who are thinking, I'm the activist now, like Kaya, mm -hmm. I want to be up there on that dais, but the harassment scares me. Well, I think recognizing, I mean, that that systemic racism is a part of our lives everywhere. But what changes, what shifts when you go from being the public to then being the public figure is that it becomes acceptable for people to attack you. It is constitutionally protected in some instances. It is absolutely that the scrutiny, the well-earned scrutiny that our government has, the well-earned distrust that the public has for our governmental institutions and our systems, you are now seeking to be a part of that. And so you are now suspect, whether you deserve it or not. And I will posit that you don't deserve it <laughs> um, to start off with, but understand that from a public's perspective, um, that that is that is a birthright that is built into the way that we treat public service. 
and that there is an additional level of scrutiny that you will face that is very real. And so you have to be confident in yourself enough to know that as people are going to question your life story, because they will, and as they may try to shout you down or cut you off, as as you were going to struggle to gain every single vote that you can possibly get, you will have all the tools you need. They are within your DNA to be able to still do the work that you want and you believe that you should be able to do. I think as we think about running for office, one of the challenges that um, I pose to folks, because it's frequently a question of, well, can you raise the money, right? That's always the question. Are we able to raise the money to run for office? But the question is not just what happens to run for office, what happens when you get there? So are those supports there? And I think that there's some unique experiences that happen for women of color that we don't consider that might actually be barriers. I remember meeting a woman at the International Women's Forum who wanted to run so badly. She had been asked by so many people, beautiful black woman, was strong, had a long history of working in um, federal government. And people said, you know, you really should consider running. And she said, I have this fantastic federal job with benefits and I'm a single mom. And so the concept of having to leave that job without a guarantee of what's going to happen next And how I'm going to be able to mitigate that with the responsibilities, the duties, and the love that I have for wanting to raise my child makes it so on some levels it is not accessible to me. Do we have even baseline things like support systems for child care? That's a very real thing. There's plenty of funny stories you can find on the internet that I've told of my son coming with me to the state house and having his say about more than a few things in the judicial committee and (laughs) other times when he's interrupted the governor in the middle of his interviews because (laughs) that is real life and that is part of that real life. But that is something that I went ahead and said, we're going to go ahead and try to find a way to make it work even though it's not workable. And we need to be able to change the systems in ways that will make it workable. So that is really, really key. And if we're thinking as well around some of these other positions, so we can think Congress. And in Congress, you're going to get paid a living wage. You will be paid while you will receive benefits. But when we look for many lower offices in some states, those finances are just not there. And so there's this double ask that happens for you where you have to both have the financial means to be able to run, but then also to be able to maintain in that space. And for me, that is racialized because it's actually asking for black women to not only sacrifice to serve, but then to sacrifice in a multitude of other ways that we might not have. We might not have to ask that of the elderly white retiree or, or the person who already came in with wealth. So I, I, I encourage people to ask, so not only what do I have here, but then what happens when I get there? And so if I am also encountering acts of racism, acts of bigotry, acts of discrimination and sexism, how do we really deal with this? Do we deal with this in meaningful ways of great real conversations? Are we allowing for a narrative to call us out when we're speaking our truths instead of hearing, acknowledging, and honoring our voices? Are we being censured, sanctioned? Do we have resolutions brought up to ask us to be silent? What are these things? 
that impact us when we get there. So it's not just, do I have enough gas in the car to make that journey? But then where will I put my head down once I, once I get to my, my destination? What you said, it reminded me so much of a discussion we just had at Power Rising, a conference for Black women, and we did a session on running for office. And one of the women said, okay, so I have to make a certain amount of money, right? And I have to have my taxes together and I have to have this type of job. And just because of what our political system looks like, That is what people believe they have to aspire to just to get their foot in the door. And I was looking at her and was like, I started just shaking my head. And Glenda from Higher Heights was in the back of the room and she started shaking her head. And we said, this is part of the problem is that we don't have enough people that look like us in elected office to show Mm -hmm. that you can do it too. So Mm -hmm. we have to be the ones to start to change it. And another question that came up, and I think you will have great advice on this, is, well, the area that I live in, it isn't predominantly people of color. So can I run? Can I represent there? Which is a question that angers me so much because we never ask these things when a non-person of color wants to run in a area that's predominantly people of color. But for people of color, there is just this awful, outdated, horrific perception that we can only represent people that look like us and mm-hmm. that the only people who would want to be represented by us are people that look like us. But mm-hmm. you represent an area where not everyone looks like you. <laughs> that is very real. Um, so the first part when um of your question as we were thinking about what does that mean to run and what are the barriers to running? I still think it's important to name though, that there's an exceptionalism that's expected of women of color. If we are going to step up and step, put ourselves into the spotlight, we are placing ourselves at a, at a point of extreme scrutiny. And it is difficult to imagine. How do you push through? We look at sisters like Stacey Abrams who had to be like, yes, I have debt. Of course I have debt. And I'm dealing with all of these other challenges of life. Does that mean that that's going to impact my ability to lead and to serve effectively? No, actually, it doesn't. No more than wealth does. No more than white skin does. No more than being a cisgendered male does. None of those things, (laughs) none of those things are actual qualifiers for you to be able to serve and be in this place of leadership. And so for me, my choosing to run was an opportunity for me to say, but I need to do this for myself. And again, who is watching as I go ahead and step forward? So um, the things that I found connected with so many of my voters when I first ran for office was actually the relatability that I had to their own lived experiences. Now, I still, even though my demographics are not predominantly, are predominantly white, I still also meet the criteria essentially of how it works, especially for black women and women of color, that you're still also representing places that have high concentrations of poverty. And so there is a certain resonance of experience that you still lend. 
And I think that it's important. And so white rural poverty looks very different than inner city poverty. But the pains of poverty are salient regardless of where you're located. And the challenges that people in poverty experience are so hefty that you can find commonalities, even if you have completely different cultures. And so I'm running and I'm running as a black woman. I'm stepping up and I'm placing my face, I'm placing my name, I'm placing my family's history, I'm placing all of these things up here in the spotlight. And it is not just about me, but it is about what the work is that I'm trying to get done. And that is what will always resonate. And so the goal is to just make sure that it resonates enough that you can get in. I love it. I love it so much. And following you, I learned about Dr. Dr. Daryl Wing Sue. And this is a quote that you have said before that committing blunders is okay if we learn from them. When you commit a racial blunder, it's how you recover, not how you cover up. And mm-hmm. I just found this so profound because I literally see people who want to learn and recover and those who act like they have not done anything wrong and you're the problem and mm-hmm. what they said wasn't offensive. And it happens a lot in the spaces where we work, where these are supposed to be people who are good on their issues and Mm -hmm. live their values. Mm -hmm. And you're just, wait, wait, what? So here's something that I am saying, and I'm throwing down the gauntlet because there is an urgency. There is a lethality to the level of systemic racism and discrimination and oppression that we are dealing with in all of our communities across the country. There is a lethality to the fact that this has not been resolved, that we have not reached equity. There is a lethality to it. So there is an urgency that cannot be forgotten. So for those folks that are interested in doing that work, my my requirement is that you do the deep work. So we had these conversations around Governor Northam and his blackface back in college days when he didn't know better. And so now has he apologized and he's done all of this great policy work. Does that wash it clean? But then we find out that it doesn't because the work never was done. Asking the really critical questions, doing the reading, interrogating your own beliefs. It doesn't just happen just because you say, I'm sorry. It happens when you're willing to do the work. And so as women of color that are trying to be engaged in politics, we have to demand that level of excellence, the same level of excellence that is placed on us that says that we must be on top of everything, that we must know more, we must do more, we must push harder. I say that exact same challenge to our majority culture that if we're going to change this, there is real difficult, painful work that must happen. Because what happens when it doesn't rise to that level of accountability is that we find out years later that, again, nothing really shifted. We had a uh, a Democratic state representative, also in my district, before my time, who a few years ago showed up to a Halloween party in blackface. And... um, I was distressed by it. There was one other black woman there and I brought her because she was really feeling lost in our community. And I was like, it'll be a good time. Come out to this Halloween party. And then this is what we're faced with, right? 
And so I wrote about it the next day, but I didn't say who it was. I didn't name any names. I was just sort of like lamenting this happening. And that person reached out and was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. They named themselves. Like, that was me. I'm so sorry. You know that I would never do anything. And this whole long, heartfelt apology around how it was wrong and how they had black friends and they never meant to do this and they thought it was okay and blah, 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 all this other stuff. Now, here we are, and I'm in this situation where I'm dealing with incredible amounts of online scrutiny and harassment. And that same former elected official with a still has a D next to his name, according to Wikipedia, (laughs) gets on and talks about how I've been a race baiter before I even ran for office and about how I've made everything about race. And I just came from Chicago to destroy the state of Vermont and to self-promote and all of these other things. So that person didn't do the work. And as a black woman, I am not allowed that space. We're seeing this happening on a national stage to some of our sisters that are in the in the um, in our government right now that we are not allowed to stumble. (laughs) We are not allowed to stumble without being vilified and we are not allowed to say. Okay, I want to listen, I want to learn, call me in so that we can all have this conversation. Instead, we are called out. We are harassed out. We are blacklisted out. So as these women that are trying to seek these seats of power, we must demand, if we're going to look for equity, we must demand equal accountability and proof of actual reparations done. Oh, you just spoke to my soul. Just everything that you said. I know I relate to it 100%. And I know there are so many women that are listening that also relate to it because that is what happens. You try to elevate the conversation and it can easily get turned around on you and you're the problem and you're awful and you don't like me because, but I have black friends. And then I'm just, did you just really say that? That has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about what you did and Mm -hmm. why it was offensive. And we do have so much work to do. And a lot of it gets lost when we do see great women like you getting elected. We have our great new women of color in Congress. People just think, but it's fine. They're getting elected. All is good. No, there's still so much work to do. So much work to do and demand that work because we don't have time. We don't have the luxury of time to um, wait for people to be comfortable to make the changes that are necessary. And that is the strength that we carry. That is the strength of our DNA. And that is the strength that's within our bones. People power movements are really powerful. But it takes great tools to turn enthusiasm into action. Small dollar donors gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform in the 2018 election cycle. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure for grassroots supporters. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools enable campaigns and organizations of all sizes to flourish, from local nonprofits to presidential candidates. Candidates and groups using ActBlue know that they're using the best tools available. ActBlue is a nonprofit and a tech organization, so its tools are rigorously A-B tested, automatically mobile optimized, and constantly being improved. That's why ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. 
ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. A few weeks ago, you spoke at the Women's March in Vermont, and you said, what defines your movement is political courage. And I was just really moved by your remarks, just like I'm moved by this conversation. So tell us a little bit more about your political courage. I believe that political courage has to be centered on and focused on making the types of changes, pushing forth the types of policies, the conversations, the work that needs to get done to elevate women of color, to centralize the needs of the oppressed and to dismantle these systems of oppression. It is saying things that may not be popular. It is pushing forth policies that may be uncomfortable, but we know that they're necessary. We know that they're necessary. It is around standing clearly um, within your values and your morals and being able to speak with that clarity of knowing that you might, you might not get reelected, but understand that those seats of power never belonged to you. They were given to you by the people. And so if you are not serving the people, or if the environment has changed in a way that your voice is not able to remain salient, you've done your job. Because at the end of the day, you have to sleep with yourself at night and you have to feel comfortable with the choices that you're making. I have a really difficult story that I've only recently started talking about. And it was on a bill that was one of the most challenging ones that I've ever dealt with. Um, I have a background in supporting victims of domestic violence, helping families in flight, court advocacy, and things like that. And so I'm very closely tied with our advocacy groups in the state that were looking to do some really comprehensive work. And we did. We had a fantastic year of bills that we passed in support of sexual um, assault survivors and child abuse survivors and domestic violence victims. And they came to me with a particular bill that was looking to remove guns at the site of, um, at the call, the time that the police come um, on a domestic violence call. And I understood exactly what they were trying to say with that. I understood precisely what they were trying to get at. But my worry is about what that looks like when that call comes through, that we know that there's supposed to be this sort of standoff and this power play involving firearms and a law enforcement system that we know is racist. In a state where we have the second highest rates of black males incarcerated, what does that mean when the white police come to that house on a domestic violence call? Does that increase the level or likelihood of violence? Does that allow for malfeasance to take place? Because anything in plain sight can then be subject to a search. Are we placing others? Like, what is going to really happen with this? How can we ensure that there are you know, that we're looking at our Fourth Amendment rights and what that search and seizure looks and feels like without due process, because we know what it can look like when it's completely wrong and out of control. So what happens in that moment? And I just wasn't comfortable. And I had promised my chair, I was like, you know, I just can't vote for this. (laughs) I just don't, you know, I won't say anything. I'll wait. There's a whole process in the voting process where you have an opportunity to speak and explain your vote. I was like, I will wait until the final reading, (laughs) the last vote, until the vote explanation to say why I'm voting the way that I am. And I was told, Kaya, if you say that, you're going to flip at least 15 votes. I guarantee you that. Because what you're saying is the truth. 
but what do we do? And I didn't want to block the bill as well at the same time because I didn't want groups like the NRA to feel like they had won because the NRA is not there for black and brown lives. <laughs> the NRA is not there to support black and brown voters and black and brown elected officials. That's just not what's happening. And so I voted for it and I didn't say anything. And I went, I left the building and I went to the place that I was staying and I vomited all over the front lawn. And so you have to live with these choices that you're making. And if you feel like you are compromising fundamentally on your values, on the whisperings and the pleadings of our ancestors to get this done and get it right, if you are feeling distant from that, then what are we doing? This will drag you down. It can be so exhilarating and completely demoralizing at the same time. So all you have at the end of the day is your integrity, your legacy, and your story. And so make it count. That is so powerful. And one of the many things that I love about you is you just don't speak about empowering communities of color, empowering women. You really do it. And I'm going to see you shortly for International Women's Day with Oxfam as a Sister on the Planet ambassador. And I'm one of those ambassadors because you brought me into this network. You put me on their radar And just tell everyone a little bit about what made you want to get involved with Oxfam as someone who is such an advocate for women across the world. Mm -hmm. I think it was an incredibly powerful opportunity to be able to share space and bear witness to what we can bring. So as an influential individual, I have an opportunity to go to our Congress and say with clarity, there are people out there doing the really difficult and important work right now. And we are trying to keep women alive on this planet because women are more impacted by our natural disasters, by our famines, by our acts of war in ways that are so disproportionate. So if I can use this voice and I can use this power to influence that, I want to be able to. I mean, I'm fortunate in that our delegation hold really powerful seats as far as looking at appropriations and their foreign policy stances and where they're at. And so I can come to them and ask for those direct asks and get them. And we need that. (laughs) And we need people who are willing to come and speak very clearly and to show that there are others that are looking to our elected officials, looking to our government to do the right thing. Um, Women across the world are needing us to do that right now. So amazing. I can't wait to see you. And I have one final question for you. What advice do you have for the brown girls that are listening that are saying, I want to be just like her? (laughs) Be just like you. Be just like you. Do you 100 percent. I just step up and run. And I can't promise you that just because you run, you'll win. But you will win. Just by running. Step up because you never know who's following in your footsteps. We just had an election here in Vermont, and there was a a single father, black male, who had moved to Vermont over 25 years ago as a college student and had been pretty involved and engaged in our community, but 
really felt invisible. He'd been harassed by law enforcement for so, so long, for most of his experience in this town. And he decided to run for school board. And he said, I did it because you did it. So know that someone's watching and live your own journey. Do you 100%. Perfect advice. Thank you so much, Kaya. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed hearing this conversation with Kaya. It's very rare that we're able to talk with a woman of color who openly and honestly shares her trials and tribulations, her struggles and her successes, and the work that she does trying to make her state, her country, better. I hope that the next time you see a woman of color on the campaign trail, you'll look at her differently and realize that it's not all smiles, it's not all handshakes, it's not all holding babies. There's a lot that goes into campaigning. There's also a lot that you can do to support all women when they're running for office. You can volunteer on their campaign. You can make a small donation. You can talk to their friends about them. The fact is, when women run for elected office, they win at the same race as men. But we don't have enough women running. And when women have to experience sexism, misogyny, and racism, it is a key factor that contributes to them not wanting to run for office. But as we learn from Kaya, don't let that deter you. We need you to run. We need you to step up. We need your smarts and your talents to make this country better. Stay tuned for next week when we're doing the very first Brown Girls Guide Roundtable at the She the People Forum. Stay tuned for hot takes on what our presidential candidates are talking about and what they plan to do to advance this country for women of color. You can keep track of what we're doing on our social media handles. We are at the BG Guide on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find out more about what Wonder Media Network is up to on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNmedia. It's an intense one. <laughs> <laughs>